If you wrote down the names of all the publicly traded companies that are part of the Fortune 500, cut them up, and threw them into a hat, chances are, if you pulled one out, that company would be incorporated in the second smallest state in America. I'm talking about Delaware. Of the 470 public companies in the Fortune 500, more than 300 of them are incorporated in Delaware, and the likes of Disney or Amazon or Google, uh, Microsoft. That's the FT's Wall Street editor, Sujit Indap. Big companies, wide shareholder bases with famous investors, they're almost always going to pick Delaware. But a couple of weeks ago, there was one very large shareholder who was not happy with Delaware. Now, a judge in the U.S. state of Delaware has annulled a $56 billion pay package that was awarded to Elon Musk in 2018 by his electric car company Tesla. So essentially $56 billion of stock that had been earned by Elon for being CEO of Tesla was wiped out. The reason Delaware was the focus of Musk's frustration is because that's where Tesla, like all those other big companies, is incorporated. So any legal troubles involving shareholders end up in its courts. And after that judgment, Musk took to his social media platform X and wrote, never incorporate your company in the state of Delaware. So when Elon lost this case, he could have just been sad and say, I disagree with the opinion. In fact, he made a, a more extreme point, which was that the Delaware court system where he had just lost the decision somehow was illegitimate or not a place where he wanted to do business. Now, the thing is, Delaware's kind of like the McDonald's of court systems. You just know what you're going to get. And big companies and their shareholders like that stability. So how did Delaware become so special in the eyes of corporate America? And why is Elon Musk no longer loving it? I'm Michaela Tendera from the Financial Times. Today on Behind the Money, we're looking at how Delaware became the top destination for publicly traded companies to incorporate, and why despite what Elon Musk says, it's unlikely that's going to change anytime soon. Hey, Sujit, welcome to the show. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Okay, so we're going to be talking a lot about the state of Delaware today. Um, and for people who haven't been, can you just help us picture it or what's it like? What's it known for? Yeah. So Delaware is a, is, is a relatively small state. It's one of the 13 original colonies, I believe. The state itself, obviously, Joe Biden, the current president of the United States, is the longtime senator from Delaware. Uh, the DuPont Chemical Company is famously from Delaware. But otherwise, it's mostly known for some nice beaches and then something, I guess, to drive through quickly when you're going from Pennsylvania and New Jersey towards Maryland and Washington, D.C. and Virginia. It is small uh, relative to those uh, neighbors. And so uh, for that reason, the Delaware courts have kind of an outsized importance to, to the state itself. It is an important part of the state's identity uh, and industry. Of course, Delaware, like any other state in the U.S., has a number of different courts in its system. There's the state Supreme Court, a family court, 
But the one that we're going to zero in on today is called the Court of Chancery. And Sujit tells me that this one is different. I guess what is most interesting is that it is a so-called court of equity, which is a contrast with the traditional court of law. Mm, And court of equity, what's that mean? The word equity, the best way to think about it is uh, it means fairness. So a court of equity essentially just has the discretion to make judgments and like change outcomes in order to uh, achieve a, a result of fairness. This court, the Delaware Chancery Court, is the one that took on the case that Elon Musk just lost. When, say, shareholders sue over a compensation package that they think is too big, this is where it ends up. And it's up to these judges, also known as chancellors, to rule on cases. The Chancery Court doesn't have juries. And these sorts of judges, these chancellors, they tend to have sophisticated backgrounds not only in law, but also in business and finance. They uh, render decisions relatively quickly, efficiently, uh, and that's actually important in disputes like M&A fights and proxy fights where there's like a live transaction. And oftentimes companies will need to get at least a preliminary decision relatively quickly. Uh, and Delaware is a place to do that. They can hear cases quickly. They can make decisions quickly. So Delaware's court system is fast and effective. But that's not the only reason corporations love it. It's also because of how long it's been in operation. Delaware's Chancery Court formed in 1792, and it's modeled on a court that goes back even further to the High Court of Chancery of Great Britain. Over time, Delaware law became relatively advanced and sophisticated. And once you create like case law, which just means precedent decisions, that itself creates prestige and it kind of builds on itself. It's self-perpetuating. And that case law has created like rules of the road for boards on how to structure transactions and how to interact with shareholders and all this uh, predictability and reliability that's really important to companies that are making multi-million and billion dollar decisions. So with literal centuries of precedent on the books, what it really comes down to is predictability. Boards, shareholders, they all want to be able to predict how things are going to shake out before a conflict ever even crops up. And that's usually what Delaware can offer. This predictability has created a set of expectations when businesses end up in court in Delaware. That includes things like what's known as the business judgment rule, which is just a very jargony way of saying that these courts typically don't like to get involved in the boardroom. Delaware generally lets boards of directors and CEOs run companies how they see fit. And they don't second-guess most decisions. So with Elon Musk's situation, why did the chancellor disrupt this usual dynamic? Well, it had to do with the facts of the case. The scrutiny changes if a board of directors is not truly independent and, in fact, is too closely tied with the CEO. And in that instance, the court is worried about the problem of self-dealing, a CEO trying to benefit himself at the expense of other shareholders. And in those scenarios, the standards of review become higher. Sujit says that's essentially what happened with Elon Musk. The chancellor in Musk's case found that the board directors who approved Musk's $56 billion pay package at Tesla were too friendly with him. So the judge's decision 
hinged on, I guess, one key conclusion. The directors themselves negotiated and then agreed to this pay package in 2018. Those directors ultimately were not deemed to be independent enough from Elon Musk. Their ties were too close to him. So that's where Musk got tripped up. The court did something it usually doesn't. They became a little less predictable. And that's what inspired his posts on X aimed at Delaware. But Musk didn't stop there. Later, he also announced that he was planning to hold a shareholder vote to move Tesla's incorporation out of Delaware and over to the state of Texas. But that begs the question, what's in Texas? We'll hear more about that after the break. The 2024 U.S. presidential election is in full swing, and I'm not going to lie, it's a lot. To help you make sense of the information overload, we're launching a new U.S. politics show. It's called Swamp Notes from the FT News Briefing, and it's hosted by me, Mark Filipino. Tune in every Saturday morning for insights from FT journalists and a global perspective on the election. Listen to Swamp Notes by following the FT News Briefing wherever you get your podcasts. So, Sujit, Elon Musk feels burned by this decision that was made recently in the Delaware Chancery Court. And he's now said that he wants to reincorporate Tesla in Texas. Now, I know Tesla has its physical headquarters in the state, but why would he want to potentially move any legal disputes there specifically? I mean, just why Texas? So this comes at a really interesting, if not ironic, point. Texas itself, by coincidence, has started this campaign to bring more companies to Texas for their incorporation. Mm, but why would they want to do that? Texas is obviously a very large state, and its economy has been booming in recent years, particularly since the pandemic. A lot of companies from the Northeast or California have been moving operations to Texas, if not their headquarters. And so the Texas legislature and its legal community have said, why don't we institute our own corporate law court that looks like the Delaware Court of Chancery? And it will be attractive because there's so many companies that are already here. We have this reputation for being a haven for business, and there's all this talent here too. Let's create a sophisticated corporate court that can be an attractive place to have legal disputes heard. But as CEO, you're no longer CEO of that company when you turn uh, the future of that company over to 12 jurors in a jury box. Those jurors are your CEOs. That's Texas Governor Greg Abbott in a clip from a local news station last year. He's talking about a state's need for some sort of business court. We need to have the intellectual, methodical, uh, judicial approach that is deserving of these types of uh, disputes. So it's something that Governor Abbott signed on to. But Suji, what's this court all about? What do you know about it so far? It is called the Texas Business Court. The governor of Texas is supposed to be appointing judges to this court any day now. It's new. It's obviously untested. Uh, there's various kind of details that have to be worked out. But there's a lot of enthusiasm and a lot of excitement. Elon Musk has suddenly given this new Texas court a lot of attention. And they're definitely trying to capitalize on it. Okay, so it's clearly very new here. Um, but I mean, what should companies be thinking about if they are considering incorporating in Texas? Or perhaps what should Tesla shareholders think about if they do end up voting on whether the company should move to Texas? 
I mean, the concerns are, are the basic ones that it's obviously a startup. And so it has huge barriers to ultimately establishing credibility. Delaware obviously took decades, if not centuries. And so there's a huge head start that a place like Delaware has. And so is Texas going to be able to catch up even with whatever advantages it has uh, is a question. And then there's the political question around Texas. For all its uh, reputation as being uh, a business-friendly state, the politicians there, the legislature, the governor, the attorney general have waded into the so-called culture war whether it relates to ESG and DEI and BlackRock and various truly hot-button issues. Delaware, uh, the courts are more or less apolitical. It's a mostly moderate political state, and Delaware knows how important uh, the idea of nonpartisanship is in its courts, that it has steered clear of making those politicized in a way that Texas is now a wild card. So, Sujit, just as we were hitting the weekend, you reported that Musk moved the incorporation of his company Neuralink that's the one working on the brain implants, he moved it out of Delaware and over to the state of Nevada. Now, why did he do that? Elon's decision to move Neuralink from Delaware to Nevada may not come as a total surprise. First, it may be, in fact, a response to the compensation decision in Delaware from a few weeks ago. He also has the company X, uh, the former Twitter, in Nevada, which he moved uh, its incorporation from Delaware to Nevada after he closed the $44 billion buyout in 2022. Nevada is known for being a state that is very deferential towards controlling shareholders and uh, shareholders with big stakes in companies and letting them make the decisions they want with minimal interference. So this shouldn't be seen as a uh, shocking move by Elon, who has said uh, he has a fondness for Nevada. Mm, And what would you say are the implications for this move? A lot of other states look to Delaware precedent uh, when they have some kind of unresolved question. So he could very well be facing the exact same or similar standards that he saw in Delaware. So it's not the cure-all that he thinks it is just yet. Yeah. Well, what does all this mean for Delaware as the dominant state for corporate law? I mean, could what's happening with Musk here actually have an impact on the number of companies that choose to incorporate in Delaware, do you think? So I spoke with Stephen Bainbridge, who's a famous law professor at UCLA and has studied Delaware corporate law for decades. And he made the point that by Delaware taking on the richest man of the world and ultimately ruling against him showed the state's independence and commitment to its rules. And that alone would keep Delaware dominant just because companies and shareholders knew that it was a place of principles and ultimately it would be a place that was predictable and not subject to the whims of a rich man. So uh, that's a really interesting way to think about it. And I think in the near term, he'll probably be right. Well, Sujit, thanks for being here. Great to be here. Thanks for having me. Behind the Money is hosted by me, Michaela Tendera. Safia Ahmed is our producer. Topher Forges is our executive producer. Sound design and mixing by Sam Giovinco. Cheryl Brumley is the global head of audio. Thanks for listening. See you next week. Hold up. 
Support for this podcast and the following message come from Coriant. Coriant provides wealth management services centered around you. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Coriant has experienced teams who can craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex. Real wealth requires real solutions. Connect with a wealth advisor today at Coriant.com. That's Coriant.com. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc.